Well, good morning, church. Open your copy of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 4. It's on page 977 in my Bible. Somebody say, who cares? Yeah, that's right. All that matters is what page it's on in your Bible, okay? We are the church. Somebody say, we are the church. We are the church. We are the church. Never before has our nation been so divided. If we are the church, we are united. Did you know that Jesus right now is praying for us? John 17 tells us that Jesus' prayer is that, Father, may they be one just like we are one. He's praying for us. And his passion is for his church to be united. And I wonder how many times we need to hear it before we start living it. I wonder if today could be a day. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's today for you that you say, I'm done being divided. I'm done looking for excuses to run away and to accuse. I'm done staying away and withdrawing and isolating. I'm done. We're in this together. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're in this together. We're in this together. We're in this together. As much as we want to make the Jesus thing about me and Jesus, it's not as much a me thing as much as it is a a we thing, and we miss it in our hyper-individualized, hyper-independent, autonomous, self-sufficient America. Never before has the church lacked anything that resembles what the church was intended to be all along. And if we are the church, we live in God's presence under his authority for his glory, and we do it in unity. And every single day, we make choices that either tear down or build up the very bride that Jesus laid down his life for. And I don't know what your MO has been. I don't know all the details of what goes on in your mind. I don't know what conversations take place outside of these walls about the church. But what if today we could be so committed to what Jesus is committed to, and it's unity in his church. We are united. We are united. If we are the church, we will experience that kind of unity. But how in the world do we do that is always the question. How, how, how? Somebody ask how. How do we do that? Well, let's start here. Ephesians 4, verse 1. If you're not seeing it in Scripture, don't believe it. Don't believe it, okay? If you see it and I'm saying it, believe it because God wrote it, not because preacher said it. Here we go, verse 1. I, therefore, this is Paul, a prisoner for the Lord. A what? A, a prisoner. That, that's his identity. I used to be a prisoner of Satan. I used to be a prisoner to my own lusts, my own desires, and my own flesh. And now I am owned because I've been purchased by the Lord. Is that your story? <laughs> he owns me. I'm not my own. He's my master. So if I know who I am, I can only experience unity when, when we walk this way, knowing our new identity. He says this, I urge you, urge you. I, I don't know if, uh, if there needs to be an exclamation point there, even a pause in our English Bibles, but I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walking worthy starts with this. I know who I am, and I know who we are together. And if we are all in this together, then we can start listening to this urging and this passionate cry of Paul to live totally different than we ever have before. And he says this, there is a calling. What does he say? There is a calling on our life, and it's what? To live worthy, to live up to the calling of our life. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's just really easy to say, well, yeah, I'm sure they're called, and clearly based on their lifestyle and what they're doing in ministry and how they're gifted, like clearly they're called, they're called. Have you been there? Looking around going, 
Well, I mean, I'm not called. I'm not called. Uh, but I know people that are, and I would just say in the most gentle way, ah, wrong answer, wrong answer. If there is salvation that you have tasted of, that you have received, if you are born again of the Spirit of God, there's a calling on your life. Do you believe it? If you, if you don't believe it right now, I want you to believe it over the next minutes, okay? Before you walk out of this room, I want you to believe it, that there's a calling on your life, and if you do anything else, your life will be a living hell. Do you understand? Your life will be miserable because God has taken you out of the grasp of Satan, has dropped you smack dab into the body, into the family of Christ with a calling on your life. And if you try to do anything else, I hope you're miserable in Jesus' name. If you try to follow any other calling or your own personal, no, 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 I'm just really called to this. Satan wants you to believe that, but God wants to set you free today. Your calling is to follow him. Your calling is to be part of a united body to be part of the family, to do your part with the calling on your life. And he says, live worthy of it. Live up to it. Anybody in the house thinking that we need to work for it? Shake your head no. We're not, we're not living, hoping, I hope I'm worthy. I hope I'm worthy. Not that, not that. Turn your neighbor and say, it's not that. It's not that. It's not living for. It's not trying to attain it. It's not by works that we have done. Otherwise, we'd be able to boast we read in chapter two if we back up. But here's the reality. By faith, we choose freely to say yes to the one who freely gave his life to us. And now we're called. Now there is an agenda that the king, the master has on our life. And the question is, are you living up to it? Because if you are taking notes, I hope you are, we're called to unity. That's part of the calling. We're called to unity. We're called to unity. Eager to keep that unity living up to that worthy calling. What does he say? You see it there, verse two? With all or with complete, all, all, all. Somebody say all. Okay, so it's not with a little bit. It's not with some, whatever I can muster up, just a little bit. It's not that. All, complete, absolute. What is it? We got four words here. Everybody tracking? Humility. How much humility? Complete humility and gentleness. How much gentleness? Complete all, all, all gentleness in all things. And not only that, with patience. A little bit of patience, a little bit of patience. I'm trying, okay? I'm I'm trying to be more patient. And God says, you don't need to try. You need to live under your calling and supernaturally all in, fully committed to unity and living up to this kind of call. You will become more patient by God's grace. How about this? He's not done yet. Bearing with one another in love. All right, preacher, I was with you up until that point. Like, do I have to put up with people? Yeah, you got to look around. You got to put up with all of us. Is that what he's saying? Just just put up with, I just got to put up with the church and all these stupid church people, all these hypocrites, just put up with them. Bearing with one another in love is not just a toleration. In a day where we just say, tolerate, Guess what? God has a better plan than toleration. Patiently, gently, loving. The world knows of tolerancy. The world does not know about this humility and this gentleness and this patience and this bearing with one another in love. How about this? Verse three, eager, eager. Somebody say eager. Like kid on Christmas morning, eager. I'm eager to do what? Maintain, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There it is. 
All of these things lead to an eagerness to maintain this kind of passion for unity. How does it happen? In the spirit. What is it from? From this peace that we have been tied together with. Should we go through one by one just because you know that uh, I love words only because Paul loved words and, and Paul only loved words because God is the word, okay? So you should be pretty fired up about words, all right? So what, let's break it down one by one. Can you handle it? Somebody say, I can handle it. All right, here we go. What does unity look like? How do we practically pursue unity? Humility, humility. All the rest flows from here. I'm gonna fire off some, some scriptures uh, over time here. We're gonna be taking a look at these specific character traits that if we are living up to our calling, if we're living worthy, not working for it, but because it's already been gifted, there's now a call on your life. And the first one is humility, in all humility, complete humility. Romans 12.3, Romans 12.3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think. Is that you? But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's humility. How about this? Philippians 2.3, Paul again says this to the church in Philippi. He says, do nothing, somebody say nothing, nothing, nothing at all, ever, 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 from selfish ambition or conceit, but, but instead in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. John 3.30, we have the snapshot of John the Baptist, the very last Old Testament prophet, and the moment that he saw Jesus, finally, finally, the Lamb of God who has been promised to come that is going to take away the sins of the world. And what was John the Baptist's words as he cried out? He said a few, but this was a primary he, Jesus. He has to increase. More Jesus. More Jesus. But what's the only way that can happen? I must decrease. It's less about me. It's less about, it's more about him. And the more that we live up to this calling, that we live out this worthy calling, the more you're going to find yourself saying, it's not about me. It's not about me. In this situation, it's not about me. In this conflict, it's not about me. When we're divided, it's not about me. He must increase. He must increase. It's about humility following in the footsteps of Jesus, making much of him. And so I think you have this in your notes. But how would we summarize or make a resolution with this? If we're going to live up to and we're going to live out of this worthy calling and be united, here's a commitment. I will view others as more significant than myself as Jesus has done for me. Can we say that together? I will view others as more significant than myself as Jesus has done for me. That's a commitment to make. I am on this path of living it out, not thinking about what Jesus has done for me, not, not considering it, not looking around to what other people are doing. I will do this. I am all in, fully committed. I'm devoted. And if I am, I'm pursuing unity and unity flows from humility. How about this? Paul told, the, told us what? He tells us gentleness as the next character trait. He's saying, if you are gonna be completely walking in your calling, gentleness. Gentle. This is what flows. You know, I had so much fun with this word this week that I just like, I couldn't stop, right? I got so distracted that I looked up every time that gentle or gentleness was used in all of scripture. Somebody say you're a nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know what I found? I've never read this before in my entire life. I don't know how, well, yes, I have. 
I just, I didn't pay attention, right? I fell asleep in the Psalm somewhere along the way. I, I got, I got some good stuff for you, but second Samuel, I don't know how I, I miss this. And then it shows up again in the Psalms. Everybody ready? Second Samuel twenty two thirty six. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness made me great. Your gentleness made me great. Guess what? It's repeated again in Psalm 1835. You jotting that down? Get some addresses down, look them up later. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. How awesome is that? Like God's gentleness towards us, how he relates to us, does something in us that raises us up, that leads us forward. I don't know about you, but when something is repeated multiple times in scripture, you, you better like, I got to take note. I got to take note of that. I should probably highlight that. I should probably underline that. That should probably go on a three by five card. But I want to be great and I want to do something great with my life and I don't want to waste my life. How do I not waste my life? Receive and see that God is so gentle and then act likewise. Know him and experience him in this way so that you can conduct yourself with all gentleness. I don't know about you, but maybe we need some kind of bumper sticker. Be great. Be gentle. God's new way. Totally different than the world's way, right? James, strife and conflict, you're a fool. James tells us right here, wisdom that is from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere. That's very different than a lot of our responses, isn't it? A lot of our patterns in our life. And so let's do this. Let's read this together. Gentleness, gentleness. Here's a resolution. I'm resolved. In humility, I will view others more significant than myself as Jesus has done for me. I do it because he first did it. Gentleness. You want to read that with me? I will control myself and treat others gently as Jesus has treated me. Wow. If we would just treat others how we're already treated, if we would just respond the way that God already responds to us, if we would know the, the heart of God, we could then represent him accurately. Humility, gentleness. How about this patience, patience? Somebody say patience. Woo! Uh, different translations, long suffering. Other translations would say not short suffering, not little wicked, long, long wicked, long wicked. Like how long is it going to take before this guy blows up? Because it, like it doesn't bother him. And the reality is as believers, there's a lot of things that upset us. There's a lot of things that trigger us. There's a lot of things in our lives that provoke us. But we know a God that is patient for thousands of years. And he's giving you everything you need to be patient for those few moments and those few days. And maybe for some of us, it's been weeks and months and years of still waiting. I'm still waiting. God, uh, I'm going to take it in my own hands if you don't do it, right? I, I, I got this, God. Clearly, uh, I don't know if you got busy. Uh, you're confused. Uh, I didn't make it on your day planner, but I'm going to go ahead and take this into my own hands. Somebody say, Ugh. there we go. Yes, patience. This is living worthy of the calling that leads to unity as a church. We cannot be united as a church if there is not humility growing, if there is not this awesome gentleness 
further spreading. And if there's not patience at the heart of every believer in our church, we're going to be divided. Lamentations 3.25 helps us out here. The Lord is good to those who wait. Somebody say wait. Those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him, who waits and seeks, waiting and seeking. Is that you? Patiently waiting. Isaiah 40, 31. So awesome. But they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They're going to mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Do you know what the psalmist does at the end of the verse? He says it one more time because he just knows that we're that thick-headed, right? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Anytime that you see something doubled up in Scripture, they didn't have exclamation points, so they repeat and repeat and repeat our modern-day exclamation point. Are you getting it? Are you getting it? Let me repeat that. I don't think you're paying attention. Wait, wait, wait. Psalm 33, 20 and 21, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. He's our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 135 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I hope. I love it. I love it. So, so could we walk through those maybe backwards? Could we invert those passages? Just entertain me for a second, all right? Act like you're super interested. The Lord is not good, therefore I will not wait for him. My soul will seek after anything else except for him. Those who do not wait on the Lord will be weak and fall apart. Instead of mounting up with wings like eagles, they'll be like a slug in the ground, worming it out. Instead of running and not being weary, they take a few baby steps and fall flat on their face. They'll try to walk, and they're going to faint every time. Maybe Psalm 27 could say, don't wait on the Lord. Be incompetent. Instead, allow yourself to go down. Don't let your heart take courage. Try to be courageous in your own flesh. You got this. You can do this. It's all about you. Don't wait on the Lord. How about Psalm 33, inverted? Our soul refuses to wait for the Lord because he's not our help. He's not going to protect me. I need to protect myself for my heart is so sickened by the thought of him. I'm so repulsed and angry at God because I refuse to trust in his holy name. How about Psalm 130 on a bad day? I will not wait for the Lord. My soul refuses to wait. I open the Bible and I'm bored. I find my hope in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't know about you, but I wonder if all of us just need a refresher of why our our lives, our families are falling apart. And it's not because it's not clear. It's because we choose to do the exact opposite of what God is calling us to do. But what if we said today, I will wait. I will learn to wait. I will exercise new muscles and learn to be patient and wait upon my God. Let's go this direction. Let's read this as a church. Here we go. Patience. I will wait because Jesus has a plan for me. And I believe it. And I believe his plan is better than mine. His ways are better than my ways. I believe it. I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to wait on him. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Lastly, this bearing. How do we do this in one word? You could summarize this in one word. In the old Elizabethan English, if you got a King Jimmy on you, forbearance, forbear, church, forbear forbearance 
the idea of I am going to bear under the crushing weight. I am going to choose to come up under and I'm not going to fall flat. I'm going to choose to keep moving even though I feel like I can't take another step. And who is it with? It's with those people. It's with her. Her. It's him again. Him. There's no need for a call on your life to bear in love unless there was a whole lot of opportunities that were going to test you whether you're going to choose to do so or not. And isn't God so good that he doesn't just say, be patient, bear with one another. Instead, he goes, here, I'll show you how. I'm going to bring you this on Monday morning. Here, I'll show you how. You were asleep and then you got the call that you didn't want. Here, you'll walk into church and feel like everybody is gossiping about you and they're neglecting you and nobody is your friend and everybody else is huddled up in their little cliques. Here, I will give you an opportunity to see if you're going to live up to your calling. Here, instead of feeling encouraged, instead, you are going to walk away totally discouraged because you're a failure and a flop again. Here, here's another opportunity at the workplace where somebody else called in sick and you know that they're not and you got to fill in. Here, here's opportunities. Instead of us saying, God, thank you, because I'm only going to learn this if I'm tested. I'm only going to learn it if it's right there. I'm only going to learn to actually do it if there's plenty of people to do it with. And guess what? There are over 7 billion beautiful people placed all around the world to test you. Isn't it awesome? The only problem living in this world is people. Take the people out, then ah, I'd be so happy, right? But God has a better plan, and he's got a higher calling, and his calling is to thrust you in the middle of really difficult circumstances and do this. Forbearance, bearing with one another, not just putting up with, not tolerating. Somebody say it's not that, not that. The NLT says, oh, this is so good. Thank you where you occasionally get it right, NLT. Making allowance for each other's faults, making allowance for their failures because of your love for God and your love for them. What if every single day you just said, hey, everybody, blank check. I'm going to go ahead and hand it out to you, and I am going to allow you to be a total scumbag to me today. And it's all on me of how I respond. You have full permission to treat me like garbage. But because I know Jesus, I'm going to love you anyway. You're going to betray me and lie about me. Here, I give you permission to be as sinful as you want in my life because I'm free to not respond in kind because I know Jesus. I give you permission to make a shipwreck of my week and destroy my plans and disappoint me because God is using it for good. You're not an interruption. You're a divine appointment, and I'm going to start seeing you that way. It's on me, not you. I'm going to take ownership and stop blaming it on you. It's not your fault. It's me because I refuse to forbear, but not any longer because God's talking to me on Sunday morning and I'm changing and now I'm resolved and I'm committed. Let's read this together. Forbearance, I will, everybody, I will reach beyond the flaw to love the person just like Jesus did for me. Why would we treat terrible people like that? Because you're a terrible person and Jesus treated you that way. Why would we allow wicked sinners to get away with it? Because we are wicked sinners that God so patiently waited for us to repent and turn to him for forgiveness. We can do it with them because he did it for us. But maybe that's a wake-up call for us this morning, church. We're not the bad one. We're the good one. They're the evil one. I'm the moral one. Could we have a moment of truth?
from the moment you took your first breath, you chose to sin and you haven't stopped. And God keeps a record of every single little tiny sin and really big sin because they're all the same in his eyes. And the problem is punishment is coming. Justice will be served. And the issue is we're often not really aware that we should be absolutely horrified if we're not right with God, that justice is going to be served for me. If we start meditating and preaching the gospel to ourselves, not just to others, I wonder if we would be different. Here's a few verses that could help us as we think about making allowance for others' faults because we're choosing to lend our strength to the weak. Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation. Somebody say obligation. Does that mean I have to? Yes, that's what obligation means by definition. You who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. You have to. It's a command not to please yourself. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Ah, I have to. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's a command that God expects you to obey. Galatians 6.2, so good. What an all-encompassing passage this is. Bear one another's burdens, take on the weight of others, but it's not my problem. Yes, it is your problem because it's their problem. And together, we work together as a church. That means their weakness now becomes part of your story because you're part of the solution. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Somebody say that's awesome. So you're saying that if, if somebody's trapped in sin and stuck in sin and they're so obnoxious and unruly and some of their sin ends up bumping into my life and spilling all over me and washes up on my shore, that I have an obligation to be able to come alongside them and help them? Yes. Why is that such a big deal? Can I be exempt from that? God thought it's such a huge call that he said, you're fulfilling the whole law by loving your brother and your sister in this particular way. That's how much stock he put in this one call, this one command to bear each other's burdens, to come alongside instead of judging and criticizing to actually come under the weight. And I love that we can make these resolutions. Does everybody have these? Everybody has these? If you have your bulletin, you have it, right? Right, Nathan? You totally have this, right? No patty cake. Instead, we're taking notes, right? So we're going to bear each other's burdens. We are going to be patient. We are going to be gentle. We are going to show, display humility, not because we're trying hard to do it, but why? Are, are you seeing a pattern up here? Because that's how Jesus already has treated me. I'm just giving what I've already been given. I'm just doing what he has already done. I'm not trying hard to be somebody I'm not. I'm trying to pass on what was already donated into my account I hope we're living this, maybe not perfectly, but progressively. Are we making progress? But with what attitude are we called to live out all of these things? There was a lot, right? Big four, we got the big four so far. How are we to live out and commit to this unity? Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. Verse three, everybody there? Say I'm there. Verse three, eager to maintain, which means keep it going, keep it going. Don't, don't start and stop and start and stop. The Greek word there is tereo. You have to keep something going that already began. Who's the one that started this kind of unity in the churches? Who is the initiator? Who is the catalyst for all of this? Was it because a group of people, well-meaning people got together and just wanted to try really hard to be united? There is a reality that you stepped into a story that has been going on for a long, long time. And do you know who started it? 
Do you know who kicked this thing off? Jesus himself, through the power of the Spirit, we can live this. Do you see it? Eager to maintain, to keep it going. Tereo, keep that unity going because it's of the Spirit. It's from God himself. Make sure that there is a connection tying all of us together in a bond of peace. I'm eager to keep the unity. I want to keep this unity going. I don't want to drop the ball. I don't want to be the cause of all of a sudden the, the chain breaking. I want to stay connected. I want to perpetuate what was in the beginning. A God of unity said, I want to share this with people. Have you experienced that? You remember a time when you were like, I'm a brand new Christian. I feel at peace with God now. And now I have this connection with other Christians. And then, somebody say, and then, and then she showed up. And then he did that thing. I thought we were so tight. I thought it was awesome to be part of a church that's so loving and so fights for peace. And then I was provoked. And then I was offended. And then I was hurt. And then I was gossiped about. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. And what is God telling us to do? Get back to this place where you started, this place of peace that you have to fight for, this unity that you have to shoulder responsibility. Anybody in the room really excited when somebody else takes the initiative to try to restore and and mend something that was broken? Anybody get really excited about humility displayed when somebody comes and says, I'm so sorry, it was me, it wasn't you. Don't we get really excited about that? What was that? smelled like humility. I don't, I don't smell that smell very often. Don't you love it when there's a conflict and somebody just goes first and says, hey, I want us to be back together. I want us to reconnect. But how many in this room alone say, but I refuse to do it myself. I love it. I love it when other people do it. I love that. But I will not be the initiator. I will not go first but I love those who do. They're my besties. You just keep kissing my hiney and we're going to be okay. You keep telling me that I'm awesome and that you suck. We're going to be okay. You keep telling me you're wicked and that I'm, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve it. Keep telling me and we're going to be great. Just don't expect me to go to you. Just don't expect me to display any level of patience and understanding and forbearance and humility. Don't expect that of me. It's all on you. And I wonder how much of Satan's whispers are in your ear every day to keep it that way. And God's voice is saying, enough. It's your turn. You go first. Even if they don't respond, even if they don't meet you there, you take the initiative. Why, 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 why? I just want an answer. Why do I have to do that? Because Jesus did. You did nothing but curse him and cuss him. You did nothing but kill him and slaughter him. And what did he do? He came after you. He came after you. He pursued you. He pursued you. He loved you. He was patient. If he did that for you, church, what are we doing? It's time. It's time to go first. It's time to take the initiative. It's time for the church unity journey to not just start, but continue on. This is not part of verses one through six, but I'm going to give you a sneak peek. That's a freebie. It's like dessert. Verse 13, if you jump ahead to verse 13, Why is this such a big deal to keep it going and keep it going that the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, verse 13 tells us as we continue on in chapter 3, we're going to get to this spot at some point in the future, but today, just a little sneak peek. 
We keep doing it until when? Until we attain. That means from tereo, from just maintaining, to katan tezemen. Totally different word, which means you went from starting it or keeping it and attaining it to explosive experience of living a lifestyle where you're not just trying to exercise new muscles, but you are a body builder of unity in the church. What does he say? Until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. Some may say mature. That's where we're headed. You don't just start and try. You grow up until you mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't know about you, but I get pretty fired up when Scripture makes connections between, hey, if you start here, you don't just start and stop. You continue on. Here's the big picture. Here's the goal. What is he saying? And throughout all of chapter 4, this is what Paul is saying. This is brand new to you, this whole unity and peacemaking thing. And what you got to do is take some baby steps, right? You got to take some baby steps. Keep it going. Keep it going. And you're going to trip trip up a little, little bit, all right? There was some conflict. I didn't resolve it. I'm still waiting for them, but they're not knocking on my door. Just keep going. Keep maintaining peace and unity. And pretty soon he says, keep doing it until you are walking on your own and you're helping others to do it, that you go from being a baby in diapers to being a parent where you're living a lifestyle that that's your default. And I wonder how mature are we, church? How many of us are still stumbling along in diapers trying to figure out how to resolve just one little petty conflict to pursue unity when we should be running over here that anytime there's an offense, anytime there's conflict, solve it, solve it, I'll go first, I'll humble myself, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. 5% of us? 2%? Is there, is there 1% of us in the church that's out of diapers? That's pursuing unity? That is a peacemaker? That's confessing? Not apologizing, but confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. We're still in diapers if we're saying, hey, woman, I apologize. Sorry you got your healing, your feelings hurt. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Some of us are still in diapers if we're like, fine, I'll go talk to him. Sorry about the situation. I was just really upset. I had a bad day. Here's all the list of why I did it to justify this apology. That's not even an apology. Church, grow up. It's time. I have no excuse. I sinned. I'm not justified in what I did. It was wicked. Will you please forgive me? I want us to be right. Anything less than that is a worldly, fleshly apology that is not in Scripture. Unity only comes when we do it God's way. Unity only comes when we take the steps to not just stick our little toe into the pool of conflict resolution, but when we dive into the deep end and we learn to swim. We still got swimmies on. We're going under. And some of us are well into our first decade of following Jesus, our second decade of following Jesus, our third decade, our fourth decade, and we're still in diapers and swimmies, and we're not getting it. And God would just say today, unity cannot be experienced until we all grow up to the maturity of becoming like Jesus. That's the goal. Somebody say, that's the goal. That's the goal. Nothing else will do. That's the goal. Christ-likeness in me, in my relationships, in the church, 
It's got to be there. It's got to be there. And so I spent some time with my homeboy, Thomas Brooks, Puritan from London, 1608-ish, okay? Just, just preceded me by a few years. And I love this. He was so passionate about the demonic and the spiritual warfare that happens within the church to keep us divided that he wrote an entire chapter in one of his books and he put 12 practical unity tips in one of them. I don't know if you have that up on the screen, but we have 12, okay? We're gonna walk through them very quickly. I think we got a few at a time. We got that up on the screen, one through four to start, okay? We're not gonna spend a lot of time. If you want the entire chapter, if you want the book, I'll buy you a book, I'll buy you a copy. That's very thoughtful, Pastor John. I know, that's how much I love you. Here we go. Number one, spend more time considering evidences of grace in other Christians than you do pondering their sins and weaknesses. Promote spiritual safety that comes through spiritual unity. I just want our church to be safe. The world is not safe. Then pursue unity, because if you're not, you're part of the danger in the church. Meditate on God's many commands demanding that we love one another without saying, yeah, but. I tell my kids all the time, every, every time I hear a yeah, but, well, dad, I know it's true. Yeah, yeah, but. Yabbits and yells live in the yuds. What we're talking about here is much more than all of your yas and all of your buts. We're saying that's true. We are called to love each other. We are committed to each other. And we need to meditate on that and think about all that scripture commands. How about this? Number four, spend more time considering areas of agreement than disagreement. What if, what if we were a church that just lingered where we agreed? Man, I'm so glad we're on the same page with that. I'm so, I'm so fired up. We're united around that issue. Are we fired up about unity and what we're for? Or do we obsess about what we disagree with like pagans? God's people are different, right? Ladies, when you get together, is the hot gossip the first thing out of your lips? Or is it, I am so glad that I have a sister that we can agree in Jesus' name about this that we're together, that we have each other's backs? Or is it, you would not believe, I'm going to Facebook. And I would just say, it's satanic. And instead, when we go, this is where we agree. Everybody in? Everybody in? All right, on three, on three. We're in this together. We're in this together. What do we agree on? Let's obsess about our agreements. How about this? Meditate on your peaceful God. God is a God of peace. I just want to like think about that. The more that I think about who he is, the more I become like him the more I want to follow him. How about renew in your mind and heart what it means to be at peace with God? Because for some of us, the reason that you have so much conflict and there's so much conflict that arises in the church is because not everybody in the church is a Christian. Because you don't have peace with God, you're not at peace with people. You haven't done this, therefore this can't happen. And when Thomas Brooks was writing his book, he talked about the fact that the majority of churches in London were filled with godless atheists that dressed nice on Sunday and did the right thing by showing up to church service. And there was nothing but backbiting and gossiping and conflict because they weren't saved. They were religious and they had no relationship. And I wonder if in our minds, do I have peace with God? Do I know that for certain? Maybe that explains why there's so much conflict. How about this? Meditate on the unique relationship Christians experience by the Holy Spirit power. The power that's in us does something to us to unite us. Man, that's pretty awesome. No other relationships in the world can match what Christians have, not even blood. I know for some of us, like blood, blood, my relatives, my family, I have never had a closer relationship in the in my family than I always have had in the church. 
because when I got saved, my family, was, they were not Christian, even though we had all kinds of history, even though we went through a lot of stuff together, there was not a connection because they didn't have the spirit of God in them. My family was the church as a brand new baby in Christ. It is awesome to be able to think about how unique that is. How about this? Count the cost of disunity. Everyone in our community is listening to what we say about each other and this church. For some of us, we just need to get real honest. We give a lot of ammunition for them to reject God because we're making a mockery of the church that Jesus died for. If we have issues with each other or the church, we do not talk to people out there. We talk in here first. We have a family chat. That's what families do. Uh, hey, hey, hubby, I know we're in a fight right now, but could we go ahead and press pause and I'm going to hit social media and I'm going to let everybody in the world know what we're fighting about before we, before we resolve it. And it's going to go well. I think this is a good idea. Can we wake up from our idiotic stupor? You know that it's so evil to do that, and yet we won't talk to each other. We'll talk to everybody else. God is mocked. Satan wins. At one point, do we say, I'm done with that. We're not, we're not going to do that anymore. Count the cost. Count the cost. How about this? Be the first to seek peace and reconciliation. Go first. Go first. Go first. Point to yourself. Repeat after me. I will go first. Oh, I, I don't feel a resolve, a confidence in that. Let's do it again. I will go first. Me, me, I'm not waiting. I'm not expecting anybody else to come. No one is calling. No one's sending the text. No one's going to show up. You go. You go quickly. You go first. And how about this? We're going to end up with his magical 12. I think these are so good. So good. Walk and work together with other Christians as far as possible, making the word the only judge of your actions, not your emotions. Oh, Thomas Brooks, it's like he, he knew something that is always the same, no matter how generations and centuries move forward. We're going to make a decision relationally based on what the Word says. Who cares how I feel about it? What did God say about it? It doesn't matter how I feel. It matters what He says. I'm not going to obey my emotions. My emotions are the caboose. The engine is God's Word. I'm going to keep those. Otherwise, if they get flipped, my emotions drive my decisions. They drive my conversations. They drive what I do. And then pretty soon, all of a sudden the caboose comes smacking you in the back of the head and you go, oh yeah, maybe last year when I did that thing, I shouldn't have done that. I destroyed a bunch of lives and I almost split the church. Oh, maybe I could have started with truth and left my emotions back there for a little while to catch up with the right thing instead of the opposite. How about this? Judge yourself more than you judge others. Do you believe that number 11, every single person in this room, this is what I know about you. You read number 11 and go, I already do that. And this is what I also know about you. You're a liar. None of us think that we judge other people more than we judge ourselves. Nobody's convinced that we're judging. Are you judgmental? No. Are you judgmental? No. Are you judgmental? No. So apparently the pastor needs it. Nobody else does, okay? I need to judge myself more than I judge others. How about this? Pursue humility more than ever before. Do you think our church needs that? Humility, humility, humility first. Humility at the center. Humility as we follow Jesus, so powerful. So if we're the church and we're called to unity, we're called to unity. Somebody say we're called to unity. That's so true. We are, we are. 
We're so called to unity. The most godly thing I may do today when wronged, hurt, or offended is to be the first to seek peace. That may be the most godly thing that you do today. I'm going to seek peace. I'm going to seek peace. Somebody say, land the plane. We're committed to the truth. We're committed. We're committed to the truth. Somebody say, I'm committed. I'm committed. I'm committed. Verse four, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In a sense, we could say this is one of the the creeds of the scripture where we see a concise, memorable summary of what we believe theologically. We are committed to the truth. We're committed to who God says he is, which means that we need to put off lies and we need to have our opinions put in its proper place. I think we have a, a slide with a little graph here. Everybody look up here. One thing that I want to ask of us as we wrap up is, am I dying on the right hills? Because division isn't always bad, but divisiveness is. We should be divided where someone is speaking half-truths or false teachers are promoting false teaching. Should we be divided? Yes. We're saying, no, that's not true. We're not together. And that would be at the bullseye, the center, absolutes. Do you believe that there are absolutes, that it's a heaven or hell issue in the Bible? Heaven or hell? I mean, this is everything. This is fundamental, foundational. There are absolutes that define the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Do you believe that? There are things that like we have to get right. You are not a Christian if you do not believe certain things in the Bible. If you believe that Jesus is not the only way, there are other options, that is a false teaching. That is an absolute. We cannot compromise. God's word is the inspired, unfailing, without error, infallible book. If we don't believe that, that is an issue that we have to take up with God about, God, I'm going to judge your words instead of God judging my words. We have a problem. We also have convictions. Convictions are not core beliefs, but they may have significant impact. We believe in expository preaching. We believe that we just we open the Bible and almost always we're unpacking a section of Scripture. It's safe for us to be able to see in context. We're able to go through books of the Bible. If people don't preach that way, does that mean they're going to hell? No, no. But it's a conviction we have. We believe in some kind of worship that isn't a casual worship. It isn't a Hands in pockets. Praise God. Singing stuff, stuff, singing, his lunch. For some of us, we are not unashamed of Jesus to be able to be all in in worship. And some of us, we need to grow in that. We have a conviction that God doesn't say just sing with your lips, that we sing with our heart, we sing with our hands, we, we sing with our body. God commands us to worship a certain way. And when we go, no, it's just not my style. I'm too white for that. The problem is, It ain't about your background. It ain't about your comfort. We have convictions that God's people, they worship with all that they are because we're commanded to. So for some of us, we just, we disobey. Is that an issue that you're going to heaven or hell because you're struggling with how to worship God's way? Oh, but it's a conviction we have and it's core. How about this? Opinions, less clear issues that are generally not worth dividing over. For some of us, we are very passionate about what translation we preach from the ESV. Maybe some of us, sorry, I, I didn't mean to make fun of the King Jimmy, but some of us might be King James only. Some of us have other translations that are like, uh, I know this is the very best one. And I would say, that's an awesome opinion. And like, I want you to be all in with the Bible 
even though we might differ over what translation, okay? For some of you, you're looking around here and going, the lights are too bright, and others are saying they're too dim. That's an opinion, and that has its place. There is no issue over, if there's a drum set on, on the stage, then like that's a make or break thing because that's an absolute or maybe a conviction. And maybe we should, we should dial it down to that's an opinion, okay? For some of us, we, we think a lot of thoughts about whether there should be food in here or drink. Opinion, opinion, color of the carpet, opinion, opinion. I think we should sing or not sing, opinion, opinion. I think that this guy should preach shorter. <laughs> That's a major opinion, opinion, all right? And then we have questions. We have questions, are you currently unsettled on certain issues? Guess what? We are a church that loves to get settled on things we're unsettled about. And guess what? We're very patient. There's many people, many of us even in seats right now that are like, if I looked next to me, I'm sitting very close to somebody that totally disagrees with me about something. Or you're sitting next to somebody that is very dogmatic about something that you're still totally confused about. And guess what? We're the church. Welcome to the mess. Welcome to the mess. But we're growing in unity. We're growing together. But we need to make sure that we have those separately. What hills am I dying on. For some of us, we get really fired up and very vocal about things that are opinion at best, but your tone says, absolute. And I would just challenge you, turn the volume down, get fired up about the Bible, get fired up about the gospel, yell about Jesus, debate with somebody about how you go to heaven, dial that up, pews or chairs, stop, stop, dress code, dial it down, dial it down. For all of us, we have our thing. Can we just agree? Guess what? Even as a pastor, I got a thing. I got multiple things. For those that know me pretty well, you know, I got a whole lot of things, all right? A lot of them are opinions, and I feel very strongly about my opinions. And guess what? We work with teams. We work with leadership teams and different directors and coordinators of ministries. And guess what happens almost on a weekly basis? Inside of me, I am screaming, we will never do that. And then what comes out of my mouth is, that's a great idea. I want you to try that and see how that goes. Because I have learned what's an opinion, what's a conviction, and what's an absolute. And there's a time and place for things. So you better believe that even I have strong opinions that gets loud sometimes. And in Jesus' name, I gotta say, shut up. Shut up, turn it down because we are a diverse body with a lot of different thoughts. And guess what? We want to be united. We want to be together. What if? What if things are not right in this room? So if there's somebody that you need to talk to, if there's somebody, or even just send a text, you say, they're not here at church. Maybe they're not even part of this church. I'm not right with them. And even if you send a text and say, we need to talk. And I know in my heart, I got issues going on in my relationships that are not resolved as far as it's up to me, as far as it's up to me. And I need to take the first step of resolving that. So whether you grab somebody and say, hey, I need, I need to talk to you, or you need to send a text and just say, pastor said I could use my phone during service for the first time ever. He gave me permission and I'm gonna do it to show humility and confess sin. 